Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Today's guest is Kit Frick, author of Psychological Thrillers for Teens. She is also a poet and an editor. She has two books hitting shelves in 2018. Her debut young adult novel, See All the Stars, is a contemporary suspense coming August 14th from SNS McElderry Books. Then, in September of 2018, New American Press will publish her debut poetry collection, A Small Rising Up in the Lungs. Kit joined me today to talk about not only the querying process, but the process of knowing her writing was ready to query, and how she got to that place. Nothing But Sky by Amy Trueblood 18-year-old wing walker Grace will do anything to get to the 1922 World Aviation Expo, even if it means risking her life every day. A thrilling YA historical publisher's weekly calls a post-World War I epoch with visceral period detail. Available in stores now. A lot of my listeners are interested in learning more about the querying process. So tell us about your agent and how you landed her. I could talk about querying all day, so this is a great place to start. I am represented by Aaron Harris at Folio Literary Management. We often dive into, okay, this is how I queried, but actually there was a fair amount of work writing the book and revising it that led up to getting to that point. So I started writing See All the Stars in late 2014. I wrote and revised for about a year. I went through maybe four-ish large rounds of revision on my own and with the help of some beta readers during that time. In December of 2015, I was ready to query. And of course, that was the worst time in the world to start querying because it's the holidays. But I was ready. And I also knew because I had been obsessively doing my research, both into agents specifically and about querying in general, that after New Year's, agents, of course, see a flood of queries of people that are New Year's resolutioners wanting to get their queries out into the world, and also just folks that have been working diligently over the holidays and are now ready to query. So I felt like I could just go ahead and dive in in December, knowing it was the holidays, or I could wait and sort of get caught up in that flood, or I could wait until February. And I am just not a patient person. It is not one of my (laughs) virtues. (laughs) So I was not willing to bide my time until I felt like that New Year's rush was over. So I dove in in December, and unsurprisingly, there were crickets for weeks. I kept querying in January. I think I did hold back that week after New Year's, but then continued in mid-January. And it was really slow for that whole month of December and January. I got a couple bites, but mostly not even rejections, just not really anything. I was feeling 
kind of discouraged, but also trying to put it in perspective that the time of year may just mean that agents are very backlogged. And the reason I wasn't hearing anything at all might just be because they haven't gotten to my queries yet. Things really started picking up in February. I had this one weekend where I think I got three full requests in the span of 48 hours. And I was like, okay, they're reading. I'm on a roll. (laughs) Sent out 10 more queries after that. I think I queried about 40 agents in all over the course of about three months. And then I received Aaron's offer, I think it was the first week of March. I had three offers come in. I spoke with the three offering agents and I had three great offers. And I connected, I think, with all of the agents. I felt like I was in a really good position to make a decision. But Aaron had this really great specific editorial feedback that really aligned with my own goals for the manuscript and was speaking to specific areas that I had already been trying to address in revision Mm -hmm. and knew that I had made strides, but maybe clearly was not all the way there yet. And I knew that she could really help me in a specific way with revising to get prepared to go on submission. And she also was able to talk in a very specific way about her submission plan for the manuscript, which Mm -hmm. was comforting to me because I felt like I knew very little about that. I'd been so focused on querying. I didn't know a lot about the specific editors at the specific imprints. And she was very knowledgeable about that in a comforting way that I felt like I would be in good hands from a business perspective, as well as an editorial perspective. And she was also very interested right out the gate in my career goals as a writer. And I really responded well to that because I had every intention of writing many books, hopefully, and finding a long-term partnership. So the fact that she was clearly very interested in that too, and not just in See All the Stars, which I think will be the case with most agents, but she articulated it in a very welcoming and comforting way. Mm -hmm. I signed with Erin in mid-March of 2016. So it took about three months, which all in all is not very long considering how long it can take Mm -hmm. to query. Mm -hmm. Some of you readers may know that I'm a Pitch Wars mentor, and so have I have a foot in the contest querying world as well. I had no luck with contests, personally. I clearly am not anti-contest. I love Pitch Wars, and I love mentoring. Had two mentees that have signed with agents following the contest, There are clearly many paths, but with my manuscript, I could not get any traction. I tried, I actually, I I entered Pitch Wars as a potential mentee the year before I started mentoring and was not selected. Mm -hmm. I tried Pit Mad, I think, Mm -hmm. one or two of the Twitter pitch contests. I entered the Sun versus Snow contest And I just had no traction with any contest. And I think it was largely because it was very difficult to talk about my manuscript in a compelling way Mm -hmm. in such a short bite. And even for the contests that are not Twitter specific, you still are pitching in a very succinct way. And that just wasn't going to work with my book. Mm -hmm. 
I like to tell people that even though you might associate me with Pitch Wars and being a contest person, I had zero connections and it was completely cold querying that resulted in the three agent offers that I got. And I know that the query process is very painful. I was in there for a very long time and I know that it's frustrating and contests offer something outside of that slog. And I totally understand the attractiveness of contests. And I know some people that they have worked for. I did participate in contests. I also never had any real luck with contests, but it was nice just to have something different. When Author S was running her contest, I would have a post up there and my critique partner would as well. And we would just be refreshing our browsers like every five minutes to see if we had agent requests. And while I did get some requests that never went anywhere with that particular manuscript. And it was because the manuscript wasn't ready. But just having that little bit of uh, adding a little bit of fun to the misery, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for sure. And while there are contests that have an exclusivity period, like Pitch Wars does, Mm -hmm. if you are selected into it, there is a period of time where you cannot outside query if you are MNT. It doesn't mean that both contests and cold querying cannot be part of your overall package Mm -hmm. for your querying experience. And in fact, when I take on mentees through Pitch Wars, one of the first things we talk about is the fact that the agent round is an amazing feature of that contest. But the real benefit of being a mentee is working with a mentor to Mm -hmm. exhaustively revise your manuscript and then get ready to query because the percentage of mentees that find an agent in a very direct way through the showcase, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's certainly not everyone. But many mentees then are very prepared Mm -hmm. to go out and query with a polished manuscript, polished pitch materials. And that's the real boon of being a part of that contest is preparing in that way. So it's not like the two are mutually exclusive. Definitely. Definitely. Something else I want to touch on that I don't think we've talked about on the podcast before. I'm not sure it's something that people (laughs) would run across without spending a lot of time on writers forums and really interacting with other aspiring writers or published writers is that there are certain periods of time when it is better or worse to be sending queries. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned right after New Year's, and that is a big one because everybody has their New Year's resolutions and it might be, I'm getting published this year, which by the way, that's not a good resolution. Your resolution needs to be, I'm writing a good query this year. But yes, yes, believe me, that was my New Year's resolution for a very long time. I'm getting published this year. So people run out with their projects that maybe aren't ready and they're gung-ho and maybe there are thousands of projects that are ready and they finally found the nerve to send that query but agents inboxes are flooded in the new year yes and it can be very difficult to one stand out and two ensure that the agent is not just trying to get to inbox zero you might not get the attention that perhaps you're looking for so early in the uh january is not a good time Right In between Thanksgiving and Christmas, people claim is a dead time to be querying because so many people are taking vacations. So many people just, it's not a heavily staffed 
industry in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I've heard that. I don't know how true it is. I personally am pretty sure I actually signed my agent in that time period. I think you get a mix of two things during that holiday season. You have both agents that are on vacation, as is a lot of publishing, but you also have agents that are working to clear out their inbox before going on vacation. Mm -hmm. So you may get a quick response during that time, or you may get a super long response. I think both can be true. Mm -hmm. I did have some responses that came in in December in that first month, but it was a trickle. And I think if I remember correctly, the responses I got were pretty quick. So I did get the sense, and it could just be that they happened to be agents that were fast responders, because of course, different agents have different response times. But it could also be a function of agents working to catch up on work before they're about to go on a holiday break. I queried at absolutely the worst time of the year to query because I hit both the holidays Mm -hmm. and after New Year's. I mean, I really just set myself up kind of a miracle that it didn't take longer than it did Mm -hmm. because I really was not positioning myself in a strategic way. But it can be so hard when you personally are ready. I knew that I had been working exhaustively on my manuscript for the past year and I was querying when I was ready to query, not I was querying because I was setting an arbitrary January 1st goal. But Agents don't know that. I just had to hope that my materials would stand out in a way that would indicate to agents that this is not a rush job or trying to hit some sort of New Year's resolution marker, but this indicates a query that's coming because it's ready. And I think ultimately that did happen, possibly if I had queried at a different time of the year, my experience might have been somewhat different. But it is certainly something to keep in mind for people that are more patient than I. If you can wait until February 1st, perhaps, to start, you may find that you are separating yourself from both the holiday dead time and then the New Year's rush. But, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Right. And well, that's the thing, though, because if you listen to all of the rumors about when is the best time to query. Everyone also says most of publishing goes on vacation in the summer, which is spotty, Mm -hmm. but somewhat true. And then also you Mm -hmm. can query right after November because so many people are sending out NaNoWriMo projects that they just wrote a novel in the month of November and they run out and query it without revising it. You might not be that person, but if you send out a December 1st query, they might think you are. And if you listen to all of that, you would feel that you can only query between February and April. So, (laughs) right, right. And my philosophy was also that for most agents, I was just getting my query in their queue because I knew that it was the case that inboxes get backed up. And probably if I sent a query, on January 5th, it wasn't as if the agent was going to get to that query on January 5th. It might not be until February or March that they would even read it. It's something to think about in terms of timing, but you ultimately just have to query when you're ready and when your book is ready. Agreed. Agreed. Coming up, how different structures can be illuminating for particular stories and how those same structures are challenging to write. 
the greatest treasure, a most dangerous magic. Growing up with a traveling circus, Genevieve Flannery is accustomed to a life most teenagers could never imagine. But when her mother, Delia, falls to her death during a show, she leaves behind a dangerous inheritance that forces Jenny into a frightening new reality. Her life now interrupted by the terrors only Delia could see. As the visions around Jenny grow stronger and her magical legacy becomes even more menacing, she's not sure who she can trust. And if she fails to secure Delia's ancient secret, Jenny could lose everyone she holds dear. Slight by Jennifer Summersby. Your YA novel, See All the Stars, releases in August. It is a contemporary psychological thriller with dual timelines. So why did you choose to write the novel in this way? And what were the particular challenges of that structure? Because I know that's a tough one. Yes. So See All the Stars, if you have not yet heard of my book, um, is a story about first love and big loss and even bigger guilt and an epic breakup between best friends. And as you mentioned, the story takes place in two timelines that alternate between the past and the present as my main character, Ellery, tries to focus on her future. I have always loved books with then and now structures. I think that in the suspense genre, they can work especially well to build suspense. And so I had read a fair number of books, both in young adult and in adult suspense and thriller that were structured in this way. So I had it in the back of my head as a potential structure for my own manuscript when I was going into beginning the drafting process. I had read, I think fairly recently before I started writing Tess Sharp's Far From Mm -hmm. You, which is a murder mystery. I also read a lot of adult thrillers, Camilla Way's Watching Edie, Amy Ingalls' The Roanoke Girls, which has come out actually since I wrote, but I'm continuing to read in this genre, of course, and Julie Bunton's Marlena. I'm currently reading a book called Suicide Notes from Beautiful Girls by Lynn Weingarten, which is also YA. There was a tradition that I was aware of that I thought that my book might have a place in, in terms of this structure. And I also really love setting structural challenges for myself when I write. For this manuscript, there was going to be a turning point incident around which the narrative would revolve. And that I knew that it would occur at the end of the main character, Ellery's junior year. And I knew that the book would be both about what led up to the incident that split her group of friends apart. And it would also be about the aftermath and Ellery's attempt to come to terms with what happened, to make amends to the extent that she can, and then to figure out how Mm. to move on. So it seemed that the structure lent itself to the book's narrative Mm. goals. I set out knowing that the book would take place in two timelines and knowing that those timelines would alternate between chapters. So we would get a chapter then and then a chapter now throughout the course of the narrative. What I did not know was anything about how to successfully write (laughs) a book in that structure. So speaking to the challenges of that structure that you brought up, My biggest challenge was myself and my own inexperience with 
writing a book that was structured in two timelines, even having read many of them, I didn't really know anything about how to go about this in a way that would read Mm -hmm. seamlessly as one cohesive narrative. So I did something that I am 99% certain I will never do again, which is that I wrote the book chronologically from start to finish. So in other words, I wrote through the entire then timeline. I wrote all of those chapters. And then I wrote through the entire now timeline. I wrote through everything chronologically because I felt at the time that I I didn't figure out the nuances of what happened in each chapter. I wouldn't be able to successfully write the chapters in the now timeline. In retrospect, I set up this huge obstacle for myself because even though I had a finished draft then, the chapters didn't speak to each other in any way when I tried to weave them together. There were no transition points. There were no little reveals or connections that would happen in one timeline that would then intersect in the other timeline. All the things that I knew on a logical level needed to be happening to make the structure work Mm -hmm. were not there because I had not written the book in that way. So I set myself up for a huge revision challenge that I have now learned in the subsequent manuscripts on which I've worked both writing in dual point of views and more than one timeline, that what I need to do is spend more time outlining, accept the fact that things are going to happen in drafting that are nonetheless going to change those plans Mm -hmm. for outlining, and just go ahead and write one point of view and then the next, or one timeline and then the next, as the book will actually unfold, not chronologically in terms of how things unfold in real time. And I have found that as a drafting process for the next two books that I've worked on, that has made all the difference in terms of revision. Not that I don't still have huge revision tasks ahead of me, but it's at least I've eliminated that particular Mm -hmm. challenge of trying to make chapters connect in that way. But it's also a learning experience. I write chronologically and everyone has their own process and you have to find it. And often the process is different for each book as well. That is absolutely true. I am sure that there are many uncharted challenges that I will set up for myself in future manuscripts that even the experience of having now written through several manuscripts will not help me with Mm -hmm. in a specific way. Although hopefully, hopefully there's something cumulative about experience putting words on a page? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, if not, I don't know what we're all doing. It does feel like every book is its own special challenge, though. It never feels like, now I'm sad. I know how to do this now. I don't think it ever happens that way. No. You are also an editor of literary fiction and poetry for Black Lawrence Press. So literary fiction is sometimes rather ill-defined, I think. So can you talk a little bit about what separates literary and commercial fiction and the differences, if there are any, of working with each? Absolutely. So at 
Black Lawrence, I edit both poetry and short fiction as the chapbook editor for the press. So for the uninitiated, a chapbook is a short form collection. It can be poetry, short fiction, that's what we publish. There are also nonfiction chapbooks. They're usually around 16 to 36 pages in length, although some presses go a bit longer or a bit shorter. Working with both commercial and literary fiction uses the same part of my editorial brain, but the difference comes down to what we're seeking as a house at Black Lawrence. The fiction that we acquire tends to lean Mm -hmm. toward the innovative. So in our case, this does not necessarily mean that it's experimental, but definitely that the fiction is aware of its form, which is to say it needs to combine good storytelling, which in my opinion is a feature of all good fiction, commercial and literary alike, but there is also a keen attention to craft. This gets muddy because I do not in any way mean to suggest that much great commercial fiction does not also have Mm -hmm. a keen Mm -hmm. attention to craft. Certainly in terms of the type of fiction that we're acquiring at Black Lawrence, we're thinking about a market that likes to read small press or independent press literary fiction. We're looking at a combination of the craft really coming to life on the page and Mm -hmm. good storytelling. When I talk about good storytelling, I love to bring up Lisa Cron, who is the author of Story Genius. So I highly recommend her books in terms of craft. I love them. They're my favorites. So Lisa says that a story is defined in this way. It's how the things that happen, in other words, the plot, affect someone in pursuit of a difficult goal and how they change internally as a result. So as an editor, in addition to as a writer, I am paying attention to whether the story meets those requirements in terms of good storytelling. Whether I'm working on a manuscript through my private editorial practice, which is called Copper Lantern Studio, and that's a space wherein I work on fiction in a wide variety of age categories and genres, or if I'm acquiring for Black Lawrence, either way, I'm paying attention Mm -hmm. to those elements of story. I wish I could provide a really specific, succinct breakdown of literary versus commercial, but I don't think it's that easy. And I especially don't think it's that easy because it gets further nuanced in terms of what Mm -hmm. comes out through small presses and through the chapbook form that I'm working on in particular and what might be published as literary in terms of its categorization coming out through a big five or other major publishing house. And I do think the lines do get blurry, but there is something about a keen attention to craft that has to be present for literary fiction and can be, but is not always present in the commercial realm. For me, as a reader, when 
I am looking at something that is literary, or at least defined as literary, usually the qualities of it that bring that out are pretty ephemeral. It's pretty hard to say why this is literary and this is not. Mm -hmm. I feel like, of course, craft comes into it, but also just voice and feel and all of those qualities that are so hard to define. And I think that can be very difficult for new writers to determine their own genre when they're querying. See all the stars. If you look at the classifications on Amazon, it's top classification, which was, of course, selected by my publisher, by whoever does the metadata Mm -hmm. selection, is literary under the teens and, you know, teen fiction. Right broader category it's also tagged as a thriller which of course makes sense someone made a decision it wasn't me in terms of when I was querying or it wasn't even my agent when she was pitching the book but someone at the publishing house probably my editor or whomever she was collaborating with to make these decisions decided to classify the book in this way as a marketing category. So that shows that gets in some way on the back end attached to the book's ISBN. So when it is then put into bookstores, that shows up to booksellers and suggests Mm -hmm. to them how they might talk about the book and how they might categorize it in their store. So was I thinking about this as being a literary novel versus a commercial novel when I was writing it? No. Do I actually think it's kind of some of both? Yes. But sometimes these classifications come down to simply a decision that's made and what happens on the marketing end. So it gets really complicated. You mentioned voice, and that even further complicates the discussion because there is a distinction, I think, between a literary voice and a commercial or general fiction voice. You can have a voice that reads literary, but that book itself might be marketed toward a broad trade audience and the publisher might decide that classifying the book as literary isn't going to be as productive on a sales end as classifying the book as general fiction. Lastly, Kit's Editorial Practices and where to find Kit online. You mentioned earlier you have a private editorial practice, Copper Lantern Studio. So tell us about what kind of services you offer and what particular skills you utilize when you're looking at someone else's work. Sure. So yes, I I have my own private practice, Copper Lantern, and I launched it in 2016, although I had been taking on freelance editorial work prior to that and had been editing for Black Lawrence since I think 2009 was when I began as an editor there. And even before that, I was an editorial assistant at Simon & Schuster for a brief period of time right out of college. So I had a fairly lengthy background in editorial before I launched my own practice in 2016. I offer a variety of services, but I would say that the three most common types of requests that I get coming in from writers are those seeking a developmental edit on a completed manuscript, those seeking 
intensive line editing and or copy editing and proofreading in preparation of self-publishing a manuscript themselves and writers seeking query letter and sample page edits before going out into the query trenches. So those are the three most common types of edits that I do. I also do weekly writing coaching for in-progress manuscripts. So I have writers that send me work weekly, and that's both through my private practice, and I also freelance for a book coaching company called Author Accelerator. Mm -hmm. And so I do weekly writing coaching for them. I also do copy editing and proofreading for businesses, and I even do some poetry critiques. So I have a fairly wide net that I cast. I do work with primarily almost exclusively middle grade on up. So while I've done a very small amount of work on query letters, for instance, for picture books or other younger manuscripts, mostly middle grade, young adult and adult are the age categories that I work in. And you had asked about the skills that I bring to the table, and it really depends on the type of edit that I'm doing. Clearly doing a copy edit and proofread for a writer who is intending to self-publish a manuscript is going to be very different from doing a developmental edit for a writer who is planning to then go off and revise and may have the goal of querying with an eye toward traditional publishing. For instance, if I'm copy editing, I'm using my training as a copy editor. I went to several classes through NYU Center for Publishing and got trained as a copy editor. So I'm using that and I'm using the Chicago Manual of Style and Webster's and I'm putting those very technical skills to use specific to the writer's publication goals. So they're looking at that point for an editor that's going to be their last stop before going forward with the publication of their manuscript. So I'm really looking at a line level and then also looking globally at making consistent decisions in terms of style. When I'm working on a developmental edit, it's all about the big picture. So in that case, I'm providing global feedback as well as chapter-specific feedback, but not line editing on the manuscript itself. For a developmental edit, I'm looking at things like character development and relationships, plot, stakes, setting, world building, and then also at the choices that the writer is making in terms of tense and point of view. And I will often offer, in addition to those big picture feedback points, advice that's tailored to the writer's specific goals for publication. So I always, before I work with a client, I do something called an editorial blueprint. So the writer sends me their manuscript and they complete a short form survey that's on my website that asks them about what their revision history has been with the manuscript so far. It asks about what their goals for publication are, which sometimes the writer has well-defined. They know exactly that they are planning to query and that is the path they are going. Sometimes they're not sure if they're going to self-publish, perhaps seek small mm-hmm. press publication. It's up in the air. So 
I always gather that information before I start working with a writer because that then helps me frame my feedback for them. So through the blueprint, I'm reading their manuscript and I offer essentially a proposal for editing work before they sign on to work with me. I'll give a couple examples of the overarching feedback and the chapter-specific feedback that I might offer if we're talking about a developmental edit. Provide also some logistical information like the schedule and the fee and that sort of thing. I do editorial blueprints where the writer pays $90 for me to read your book and provide sample feedback and this proposal. And then if we work together, that is deducted from the cost of the editorial service. So it works out really great because even if the writer then should decide that we're not a good fit and they don't want to work with me, they have some feedback. They've gotten a perspective on their manuscript for their $90. And I haven't done all the work of reading your manuscript Mm -hmm. and providing Mm -hmm. that sample feedback for nothing. I think it's a good sort of insurance policy for both the client and for the editor. Going into then doing a developmental edit, I want to know the writer's publication goals because going back to something that I said that I provided feedback on, which is, for instance, the choices the writer's making about tense and point of view. So for instance, if I know that the writer intends to self-publish versus intending Mm -hmm. to pursue traditional publication, if they're making choices that I know are just not consistent with industry standard or popularity in terms of tense or point of view for their age category or genre, I will probably point that out regardless of the plans for publication. But I'll note that if you're self-publishing, in fact, you have a great amount of flexibility in that regard. It's helpful to know what can be popular within the publishing industry at a certain time. But if you want to write a young adult contemporary novel that's written from a third person past tense, just because that's not very popular right now in the YA category in traditional publishing, certainly doesn't mean that it might not be the right choice for your specific manuscript. And if you're self-publishing, that's even less of a concern. If you're planning to query, then I really want the writer to be aware that they're making a choice that is outside of what is commonly seen, just because they may not be aware, and then think about why they're making that choice for their book. And especially if I cannot tell as a reader how that is benefiting their manuscript. If I am feeling distanced from this character that's written in third person, past tense, I'm not seeing how that's contributing to this story. And I know they're setting up an additional challenge for themselves in terms of current industry standards, then I'm definitely going to bring that more to their attention if I know that they're planning to query and seek traditional publication, because I know that it's something that agents are going to be paying attention to. I put a lot of effort and passion into my editorial work. What is up next for you? I know you've got See All the Stars coming out in August. What else are you working on and where can listeners find you online? 
As of our recording of this, we are five weeks out and it will be even sooner when this episode goes live. I also have my very first full-length poetry collection, which is coming out on September 4th from New American Press. So I am also very excited about that. I have two chapbooks of poetry that were published in 2013 and working toward a full-length poetry mm-hmm. collection has been a really long-term goal of mine. So I'm very excited about that as well. I mentioned a second YA book earlier uh, in our conversation, and I am in copy edits for that right now. So yeah, so I can't say a lot about it yet because the first book hasn't even come out yet, but it's it's another standalone. It's also a contemporary thriller, and I believe it will be scheduled summer 2019, and it's also coming out from Simon & Schuster's McLeodary Books. I have two different works in progress that I'm working on right now. There's a lot I'm keeping busy. In terms of where you can find me online, I am at kitfrick.com. And you can sign up for my monthly author newsletter, These Little Secrets, directly from the homepage of my website. And you can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at kitfrick. So that's at K-I-T-F-R-I-C-K. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>